You are listening to The Black Landscape with Andrea Spearman, where Black excellence is always trending. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Andrea Spearman, and this is The Black Landscape, where we engage with emerging and established Black leaders here in the Bay Area. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to leave a review of the show on Apple Podcasts or in the comments of our social media. I'm Andrea, (laughs) as always, and today I'm wearing my dark brown curly hair inside of a black head wrap that has multiple patterns, colors of red, green, blue, yellow, the assortment of love. And today I am wearing also my black and brown glasses and a burgundy sweatshirt that reads, Ratchet Black Girls Matter, Nerdy Black Girls Matter, Slim Black Girls Matter, Plus Size Black Girls Matter, and so on and so forth, describing the plethora of Black girls that matter. So let's welcome our special guest, Jewel Gomez. Whoop, whoop. (laughs) Hi. (laughs) Jewel, please describe yourself to the people. Happy to. Uh, I'm Jewel Gomez. I am, uh, gosh, I'm 75 years old. I have kind of light brown skin. Uh, I have a natural haircut. Uh, My hair at this point is all white. I'm wearing a brownish, orangish sweatshirt and uh, lots of earrings. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. And you said 75? Yes. Where? Y'all can't see it, but it's not giving 75. Well, you know, it's a, it's a combination of the African-American, the Cape mm-hmm. Verdean, and the Native American. None yes. of those crack. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Melanin. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes. So welcome, welcome. Jewel is a living legend, living icon fantastic writer. So, Jewel, you let me know before this started that you're originally from Boston and then via New York. Describe mm-hmm. your life growing up on the East Coast. Lovely. I uh, was born and raised in Boston. I was raised by my great-grandmother, so she was she was quite elderly and very sharp. And her daughter, my grandmother, lived nearby. So I got a lot of that female energy as a kid growing up in Boston from women of color, which was very good because Boston was not that hospitable to people of color in the sure 50s and 60s or 70s, really. So, and we were, you know, quite poor. I grew up on welfare and... The great, the great thing was everyone read my grandmother, my great grandmother, my father. When I visited him, they he, they were all big readers, so I read a lot as a kid. Uh, I got a scholarship to go to undergraduate school, um, which was fortunate since we didn't have any money, and. I went to, fortunately, I went to uh, a cooperative education school, Northeastern University in Boston, which meant that part of the year you'd be in school and the other part you'd get a job related to what you hoped to be doing. So in the years that I was in college, I had several different jobs in journalism and finally a job at WGBH, the public TV station in Boston. So 
I got a lot of experience um, working in broadcasting, and I worked for one of the first black television shows, weekly black television shows. It was called then Say Brother. Uh, it's still on the air now. It's called Basic Black. And I was a production assistant on that show when I was in undergraduate school. And that really fed my de- desire to to study journalism. So I, after I graduated, I moved to New York. I got uh, my master's degree in journalism at Columbia. And still, after all of that, I really wanted to work in theater. So I and and I wanted to work, you know, be a writer. So I uh, I did a lot of stage managing off Broadway in New York City for everybody from Ed Bullens to dead Russian writers. I mean, I just stage managed whatever they put in front of me. I did it. And, uh, and I taught some theater for some high school students. And I then joined Conditions Magazine, which was lesbian literary magazine in New York City. And I joined their collective and really started writing my stuff then. Around that time, 83 Homegirls had come out and uh, The Color Purple. So I was writing critical pieces about that. And Wait, what's Homegirls? Homegirls. I mean, no, was, I'm, you know. Homegirls was just recently reissued, actually. And it was the first anthology of Black feminist writing. Mm. And it came out in, I think, 83. And it was edited by Barbara Smith. And um, an anniversary edition came out just this past year. So it's so it's definitely available, but it includes oh gosh all of Audrey Lord Cheryl Clark, uh, gosh, any of the African American women writers, um, poetry, fiction, essays, any any African American writer you now think of a uh, female that you now think of as well known was probably in Homegirls. And it was at that time, the original publication was done, was published by Kitchen Table Women of Color Press, which was the first women of color publication company at that time. So I, I, that's when I really, in 83, I started writing regularly in different medias and genres. Um, and then I, I wrote the series of short stories, which I was reading from that people enjoyed. And by then I had met Audre Lorde and she had let me take a class. She was teaching at Hunter college. And I asked her if she would read these stories for me. And she said, I don't know. I'm not that fond of short stories. And I definitely am not that interested in vampires. And I said, Oh, please Audrey. And so she read, (laughs) she read them. And she came back to me and she just said, you know, Jewel, this is a novel. You need to sit down with an editor and turn this into a novel. And her editor, Nancy Berriano, who had a lesbian feminist press, Firebrand Books, bought the, bought the book and we spent a year editing it and turning the stories into the novel that is now the Gilda stories that's been in print for more than 30 years. 
was I recently. <laughs> oh well, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta read it. She's she's great fun. She's very uplifting and exciting. So the Guild of Stories has been in print for thirty more than thirty years, and uh, Cheryl Dunier, who is a director, African American director, she did the film Watermelon Woman. Um, yes. Yeah, she she just re- optioned it to try to do a TV miniseries. Oh, so we're, we're our fingers are crossed for that. And um, so that was, you know, when that came out, when the Guild of Stories came out in 91, there really wasn't anything like it. You know, it's really the first black lesbian vampire novel, really. Um, and, it got turned down by all the major publishers, which was actually probably lucky because having Firebrand Books do it, which is it was a uh, small press, independent press, it meant that it could stay in print. It didn't have to sell 500,000 copies. It just had to sell steadily. So now it's... Time has caught up with it because there are all these speculative fiction classes yes. on university campuses, and the Guild of Stories is still one of the few books uh, that that gets used in the speculative fiction classes and workshops. So I was fortunate yeah. to be a little bit ahead of the curve. Yes, and I'm such a huge fan of vampire novels and that mystical world. Mm. you know as you said like black and then lesbian they were deaf i'm sure they were not checking for that at the moment but (laughs) that's what we need we need the 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 broad spectrum because you know as people well some people know but vampires have such a a sensual and sexual presence it's like Mm. why wouldn't they be across the spectrum of identity and orientation they're gonna live forever so they had a lot of time to get to know they got <laughs> they got a lot of time. And one of the things they want to do. <laughs> the, the kind of thing that I did, which I'm really happy about, was I decided, you know, the vampire, as you said, the vampire um genre is very sensual. It 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 touches people in so many ways because of the idea of living forever, but it's very predatory. Mm-hmm. And usually it's, you know, the woman is the victim and the man, the male vampire is tracking her down. And, you know, I, I decided I could shift the medium. And it actually Nancy Berriano is the person, my editor uh, and publisher, who said, you know, Jewel, are you sure you want to write a book? Who The main character is a black woman who's a serial killer. <laughs> And I said, oops, I guess not. And so we changed the principle of it so that her particular family of vampires don't have to kill. They take blood, not life, and leave something in exchange. That's their mantra. And that really made the opportunity to write about a character. It starts in 1850 and goes way into the future. And you can see how she can affect the lives of black people around her rather than being a predator. And that to me is a great joy. 
so much of a joy that I'm now writing the sequel after 30 years. Yes. <laughs> Breaking news. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Now, see, I haven't read, but I'm going to get on it. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm, I'm very it's, much- now, it's now available. You can get it downloaded or you can get it on audiobook. So I, I'm very excited because it's having, it's too, has having a renaissance in the sense of lots of people are d- rediscovering it, different generations. So that's fun. Yes. Oh my goodness. So within all that, how did you get to here to the Bay Area? I moved here in 93. Mm-hmm. Um, I had met the the woman who is now my spouse, I had met her in 84 on a trip out here and, and uh, we liked each other, you know, uh, all those things that would make really good gossip happen. (laughs) But then finally we decided, well, let's just get together. We're not getting any younger. And so we, we got together. I moved out from New York. I, I really, um, I stayed a lot on the East Coast because a lot of my grounding was there. My grandmother was alive still mm-hmm. until I moved, and uh, and Audrey passed away the year before I moved. So when Audrey passed away, I felt like okay, I could actually move to California, and uh, so I did. And I I've really really uh, enjoyed the shift. I mean, I miss my friends quite a bit, but. Yeah the having a whole different group of friends that I've gotten to meet and work with and organizations. And uh, I've worked a lot in philanthropy, both in New York and here in the Bay. So I've gotten to meet so many different artists because I worked at the San Francisco arts commission and there's so many wonderful artists in the Bay area. And uh, many of whom were my were by applicants really. And that's actually how I got to meet Ed Decker who runs new conservatory theater company, new Mm, conservatory theater center, I should say, because my office was in a city building right across from his theater. So that's how we got to meet. So being in the Bay has been very good for me. And Diane and I have been together since 93 and we were litigants in the lawsuit against California for the right to marry. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, even though we weren't sure how we felt about marriage as an institution, uh, but we felt like people should have the right to do it if that's what they want to do. And uh, so that was, that was exciting. And then we got married because who wanted, you know, an excuse for a party. (laughs) Yeah. Everyone loves a party. Don't don't we? <laughs> yeah. And we got married on a Halloween weekend, so oh. we we partied the whole weekend. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> wow. So love and just more opportunities to grow. Mhm. Mhm. I love that. Yeah. I love that. And you know, it's so funny uh, you know, having these different opportunities and meeting people. That's what we're, that's what we're about here in the Bay area. That's what we have, you know, so many people that have been on this program that have said, you know, just 
something told me I had to bring myself over here to the Bay Area, whether it was for love or for work or just one person. They just woke up one morning and was like, everyone's calling. I said, really? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm always entertained and tickled by folks who just get those like kind of spark feelings of just having to jump up and move their lives. Mm-hmm. It's you know, it, it, it's if you feel the impulse, it's really good to follow it because at some point in your life, you're going to feel like, I don't want to move. I don't want to change. You know, as we get older, it, it's more likely you're going to feel like staying where you are. So while you have the impulse to move, it's 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 really good. I, I feel very happy about my move out here. I feel very, very happy about um my relationship has been going really well and I, we have uh, grown together, which is, I think what, what a successful relationship is about. Yeah. And yeah. And uh, my opportunity with new conservatory theater center was totally amazing. You know, play being a playwright is in some ways, a little bit harder even than just being a novelist because when you write a novel, you can write a novel all by yourself Mm -hmm. and then you try to get somebody to publish it. And there are enough small publishers out there. You can find somebody, but when you write a play, you need a whole institution behind you. Gang of folk. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I feel, I feel very fortunate that um, new conservatory has produced my three most recent plays and I hadn't done a play in a long time. The play I had done before new conservatory uh, was in 97 based on the Gilda stories. Oh, okay. I I used some chapters from the Gilda stories and you probably know this company, uh, urban Bushwoman dance company in New York. They commissioned me to write a full length theater piece based on parts of the Gilda stories for their dance company. And Toshi Reagan did the music and we toured about 13 U S cities. Wow. And that was a great experience. And it really told me how much I loved playwriting. Oh, I wish I had enough to experience that. Oh God. If you're ever in New York at the Lincoln center library, performing arts library, they have a tape of it. (laughs) Say less. Yeah, it's really, it was, it was an extraordinary experience. The company was amazing. And, um, so when I, when I started working on this, my first, this piece about James Baldwin, um, I wasn't quite sure what kind of piece it was going to be. And then Ed Decker came to an event in which I read monologues from it and he was very excited and he said, let's meet and talk. And the next thing I know, I was playwright in residence at new conservatory theater center for the next decade. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you've described yourself as like foremother of Afrofuturism. How, You've already said, you know, with the Gilda stories, like ident- personal identity has definitely played a role. Would you say that about all of your work? Uh, yes. I, I mean, I think personal identity 
plays a role in everybody's work. It's just when uh, you're a person of color or queer that people start to focus in on the identity thing. I mean, mm-hmm. Stephen King's work is as much based on his identity as mine is on, on my identity. Right. Um, but yes, I think being a feminist certainly gives me a particular perspective, which is, you know, why I wanted to do something with vampires that was not predatory. Uh, I wanted to create something that showed the power of women, but not women having to behave like men in order to be powerful. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, being a lesbian made me interested in women characters for for a long time. I couldn't figure out, well, who was going to care about women characters? That's not what I was seeing so much on TV in the 50s and 60s. That was that women were not at the center of the narrative that often. So, uh, as I got more involved in the lesbian community, I thought, "All right, I want to write about women, and women will want to want to read about women." And so that definitely made uh, a difference in what I wanted to write about. Oh, I'm just in agreement. (laughs) Women, we want to see ourselves. represented whether we're you know whether you're queer straight questioning women's representation is needed in all places Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. when i was starting with the the james baldwin piece i realized that you know and i'm a big fan i love james baldwin's writing i just think he's he was a genius Mm -hmm. um and i realized sort of in my early drafts this is not just about men. We know Baldwin was influenced by a number of women in his life, like um, Nina Simone yes. and um, Maya Angelou mm. and Lorraine Hansberry. Mm, so sure. that led me to bring Lorraine Hansberry into the play. Yes. Um, The next piece that I did for New Conservatory was about singer-songwriter Alberta Hunter, who I had seen perform in the 80s in New York City in a club. And she, at that time, was in her 80s. Oh, wow. And I took my grandmother to see her, and I said, oh, Nana, see all these women in here to see Alberta? I said, you know why they're all in here? She said, no, why? I said, because they heard a rumor that Alberta Hunter was a lesbian. And my grandmother said, oh, heck, everybody knew that. (laughs) That wasn't no secret. (laughs) Yeah, right. So from that time, that was in the mid-80s, I really wanted to write something about Alberta. So that's how the second play in this trilogy um, was about Alberta Hunter. And it's called Leaving the Blues. And so then for this final piece in the trilogy, uh, which opens March 1st, by the way, here at New Conservatory Theater Center, um, it's called Unpacking in P-Town. I decided to write sort of about my grandmother, who was, as we used to call, a hot ticket. 
So we're going to take a short break to catch up on previous episodes of The Black Landscape. Download on Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, and Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Be sure to leave a review five stars. And when we come back, we'll hear more from Jewel Gomez. We are back with living legend and queer icon, Jewel Gomez. So tell us about the show Unpacking in P-Town. Great. Yeah, well, this is the third third play in the trilogy that I, I was commissioned for at New Conservatory Theater Center. And I decided I wanted to write about my grandmother because she had been such an influence on me as a young person. And she had been a dancer and a singer yes. vaudeville, you know, and doing the black theater circuit. And she was incredibly beautiful and musical and just charming. And mm-hmm. she had a group of gay friends that she went to Cape Cod with every summer. Mm. Some were guys who had been on the stage with her mm. uh, dancing or singing and they, one of the guys was Scottish and his name was Scotty and he had a cabin and my grandmother would go down to his cabin and stay there for at least a month every summer oh, in the sixties. So I really loved going down there. I would go like for maybe a weekend and it was the first time, you know, you just hang out with a bunch of gay people. It wasn't. You know, there was nothing about it. She wasn't saying uh, to them, be careful, don't say anything in front of my young granddaughter. She wasn't warning anybody that uh, be careful how they acted or whatever. I was just there and enjoying them and their spontaneous breaking into song or a tap dance because they were all so musical. Yes. Um, Black, white scottish um it was very it was very uh, exciting to me it was like a glimpse into my grandmother's world so i wrote this play about her and a group of her friends who and i placed it in 1959 just before the 60s are about to burst open social change is on everybody's mind and here are these performers who are retired and they have to figure out what's next in their lives and what are some of the things that they haven't faced as individuals? What are some of the personal issues that they haven't, they haven't faced as individuals? So I decided to pull that together as a, a kind of a tribute to them and it's it's a comedy of all things because they they were funny people they were charming and so it is a comedy and they have it has some singing and dancing in it but you know it's the kind of singing and dancing that we would do around our house you know when you break into song absolutely i do it all the time <laughs> I'm very much a theater performing arts nerd. Yeah. Any word or phrase can set you off. Yep. 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 And, you know, we, we, as a community of, of people of color, music has played such an important part in our lives and in our survival. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it's really, to me, it's very exciting to be able to remember what's, what's helped carry us through, whether it was gospel songs, whether it was Aretha Franklin, pop songs, the temptations, whatever the music of our particular period was, mm-hmm. is what helped us survive and thrive, really. Absolutely. I Music is such a entity that drives us. Mm. It inspires, it emotes, it relates, it amplifies. And then you put words on top of it. Then you put <laughs> action on top of it. You put a whole set together and look at that. You got a movie. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I was very, I was very fortunate, um, you know, to grow up with an old, two older women. Mm-hmm. I mean, my grandmother would come to my great grandmother's house regularly, but usually on Sundays she would play the piano for hours, and she would play uh, songs that she had sung when she was on the stage. She would play new pieces as she was trying to learn. Uh, it was just amazing. And I would just sit there reading the Sunday funny papers, which is why I remember it was Aww, Sundays. I remember those. <laughs> and, you know, as a young as a young person and as a teenager, and she would just be playing and singing. It was really lovely um, to see that spirit because it, it wasn't like we were wealthy, that's for sure. And whatever you know, job. She had to do various jobs when she left the stage and retired from singing and dancing. She worked in department stores. She was an elevator operator when they still had those. Um, wow. She worked cleaning offices in the middle of the night. I mean, whatever those jobs were that were certainly not inspiring, when she sat down to the piano you could see her be filled with life and inspiration just by her singing and playing. And I think I got that from her and it's what I feel when I'm writing. Mm. I love that. That is the life, you know, a many a black person is like, you have to deal with day to day toil in and out. But when you get to really just sit with your craft, joy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Joy and abundance. Yes. Yes. It's very, it's very special. And if we can acknowledge it and dwell in it, it could be such a great benefit if we just don't, don't take that joy for granted, you know, Mm. it could be such a great benefit. And I, I feel, I do feel like my grandmother's singing led me to where I am to the last, uh, play that I've just finished writing that's um, about to open. I feel like she, it was her that led me here. Mm. I love that. For young people, young writers, emerging or mid-career, what would, what kind of advice would you give them? Mm. Well, I always tell, I always tell writers uh, with they've taken my writing classes when I used to teach. Make appointments with yourself to write, because you will do 
almost anything to sometimes to avoid writing because you're nervous or you can't figure out what to write about or you're afraid people aren't going to like it. But if you make an appointment, put it on my, on your calendar, like, uh, pick a time. That's a good time. Don't start, you know, I'm going to write Monday morning at 6am. If, if you're a person who can't get up early, don't do that to yourself. No. Pick a time that you feel like is a good, fresh energy time and just put it in your calendar an hour. And when the cat, when the little timer goes off for that hour, Sit down wherever it is with your journal, your notebook, or at your computer and write something. You can go online. You can find writing prompts that'll tell you, you know, write about what you see out your window. Write about the last meal you had. Write about the last uh, friends you were with. Um, You can get prompts from anywhere. And just write. If you spend an, that hour writing, it doesn't mean it's going to, you know, you're going to win a Nobel Prize for literature, <laughs> but it does mean you are working the writing muscle. Yeah. And it is a muscle. And like any muscle you have in your body, if you don't exercise it, it doesn't really work that well. Who are you telling? So... That's that's the biggest thing I tell people. And, and you know, if you look around where you live, uh, look into your memory of things that uh, were from your childhood or from even from your parents' childhood. Because mm-hmm. a lot of, I mean, I was, <laughs> I was writing about James Baldwin in 19, his experience in writing Giovanni's room and trying to publish it in 1957. But all I know about that is what I researched, you know, but the idea of the famous James Baldwin that I know struggling with whether to publish a book about homosexual love uh, between two Europeans was not the first thing that was going to strike, (laughs) strike, me to write about but once i started thinking about it and how it related to me and the idea of what i went through when i wanted to write a black lesbian vampire novel and the people who told me why do you want to write that what's that got to do with black people why would you want to write something negative and i thought oh yeah i could definitely write about baldwin um so think about things that are outside of your experience and do the research and write, but make sure you make a date with yourself to exercise the writing muscle regularly. I love that. Make a date with yourself. <laughs> well, it's been great chatting with you, Jewel. Tell the people where they can make a date to go see Unpacking in P-Town. All right. Um, Unpacking in P-Town is at the New Conservatory Theater Center which is in San Francisco at uh, 25 Van Ness Avenue. If you go on uh, the internet and look up New Conservatory Theater Center uh, and you click on it, the first thing you'll see is actually the pictures from my show. Uh, You'll see this great group of people in their shorts and T-shirts on the beach. 
So I re- it opens, it starts performances March the 1st, and it goes through March 31st. And, you know, tickets are, are reasonable. There's opening night is sold out, fortunately, but there's a lot of other nights. <laughs> so, yeah. And I hope to be there many of those nights. So if you are there and you ha- happen to hear me on Andrea's show, come on up and say hi. Yes. Great. And I'll put those links in our show notes. Great. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It's great to get to meet you and I will see you again. Yes, I'm going to be at the show. I'm going to see what it's all about. Oh, holler at me, girl. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, everyone out there for listening and supporting another season. Again, leave a review of the show on Apple Podcasts or in the comments of our social media. This has been another episode of The Black Landscape with Andrea Spearman, where Black excellence is always trending.